change is the only constant in every aspect of our lives, be it how we work, how we live, how we learn. It forces us to make the right decisions without the choice of looking back at history and conventions to know what's right. I am Vikram Baskaran, and this is Chargebee's Champions of Change podcast, where we talk to changemakers who've walked before us, built businesses on first principles, and unearth their tips and tricks to identify change and turn that into opportunity. Remember, you're just one decision away from being a change maker. Hello, everybody. Today we have with us Elizabeth Ames. Starting her career with Apple, she's held various leadership positions in marketing and strategy, apart from being a strong advocate of women technologists. Being a part of the Anita Borg Institute for Women in Technology, she was not only instrumental in scaling up their revenue, but established it as a platform to help women in tech voice their views. Today, she's the CEO of Women in Product and continues to enrich and empower women in tech. Elizabeth, I'm so honored to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. So first off, Women in Product is a great platform. We've heard such amazing stories about it. But before, you know, for the benefit of our audience, so before we go in any, any, any deeper into the questions, could you just give me a little bit of a brief about the organization? What is Women in Product exactly? That's a great question. So the organization was started around six years ago by a group of women who mostly were fairly senior here in Silicon Valley, working in product roles. And they really felt like there weren't enough women in those roles, that they had seen sort of a decline in that in some ways. And they didn't really see anyone doing anything about it. Now, they all started off by basically just getting together. Like they would have a dinner once every couple months and sort of connect and talk about what was going on. And from those little beginnings, they decided to have a little conference that was focused on it. And so that was the the first conference that they did. And I think that they had about 300 people, but they had like 4,000 people apply to come. So they immediately got feedback that they were on to something. And then really, it has grown from there to be a pretty broad community. We have private communities on Facebook. We have several of them. I think that there's well over 35,000 women um, who participate in those. We have other communities on other platforms as well. We do the conference annually. And then we have about 26 local chapters mostly in North America and the U.S. and Canada, but definitely several in India as well. So that's kind of the organization today. It's grown a lot and it really has community at the heart of it. I would say that's the most important thing. Okay. I'm going to ask a very controversial question, but I hope it's going to bring up some interesting pieces out. Sure. We've, we've been hearing a lot about women in tech and women in product movements. Why do you think this is particularly important to have more women in product and technology? Well, look at women are half of the world's population. Are we really going to let half of the talent in the world stand on the sidelines? I mean, that just seems like a bad idea, right? If you think about it from that perspective. There are tons of capable, brilliant women out there. And, you know, most of them just need a chance. They need an education. They need uh, some support. But, you know, 
boy, I could definitely reel out lists and lists of women that would, you know, kind of blow you away with their knowledge, their skill, their leadership ability. So I think leaving them on the sidelines would be a huge mistake for the industry, right? Like if we were really going to be the innovators of the world and really solve problems for businesses and customers out there, I think women have a lot to offer. Brilliant. I think I think that's amazingly well put. You've walked the talk as well. You've been an active voice in the representation of women in tech. You've constantly spearheaded this, this shift in every way that you possibly could. Is there a broad piece of advice in terms of how can companies be more inclusive when when designing their their org structure, right? And how is how is women in product, for example, bridging this gap? Well, I think there's a lot of different things that companies can do. First of all, I think that you know companies, and this is human nature. Let's face it. You know, we tend to look for patterns and then want to repeat those, right? So, oh, we hired this person. This guy did great at this job. We'll go ask him if he knows other guys like him and we'll hire them, right? But really, especially when you are focused on innovation, bringing other perspectives to the table adds real value. And so I think a lot of times within companies, we need to do a couple of things. One is we need to look at the people that are underrepresented in our organizations today, whether that be women or other types of minority groups, and ask ourselves, are the people like that that are in our organization today happy? Like, will they stay? Are they getting opportunities to get advanced? Those people can kind of guide you and tell you, like, where are the things that you might adjust to bring more people like that into the organization? And then on the recruiting front, I think, you know, first of all, you have to look in more places. You know, different organizations have different hiring practices, but I will tell you in Silicon Valley that there is this really strong tendency to be like, well, did they get a degree from UC Berkeley or Stanford, right? And my point is like, there's a lot of really capable people out there that didn't go to UC Berkeley or Stanford. And if that's our criteria, we're going to miss a lot of good people. So you got to kind of widen that lens and think about, uh, you know, where all the, the talented people might be, right? So yeah, those are a couple of ways I think of thinking about it differently, right? Beautiful. So a slightly allied problem when we talk about, you know, women in product and women in tech. If you look at women in leadership, it's pretty lackluster, if I can use that as a word, right? Women in boardrooms at, at C-suites, still nascent. And it, it begs to think that, you know, enabling more women to leadership will end up creating that positive cycle. So how do we as, as organizations and as people enable this, this, this shift? You know, some of it is being intentional, right? Like, let's talk about boards, right? Traditionally, what happens with a lot of board positions is the people who are on the board say, hey, you know, anybody that you think would be good on the board here, right? And they know a lot of people that look like them, right? So then there's just more people that look like them on the board. So that's a place where you can be intentional, where you can stop and say, wait a minute, let's take a step back. What are the skills on the board that we need that we maybe don't have? Or what are the perspectives on the board that we need that we maybe don't have? How can we bring more perspectives to the table so that we're thinking, you know, in the, in the most 
broad way that we can about our business, right? So I think those are things that people can do. And some of it is just being intentional about it, right? I don't have this happen very often now, but it used to happen quite a bit where you would talk about bringing more women into leadership roles. And people would say immediately, we're not lowering the standards. And I would say like, nobody said anything about lowering the standards. So I think you just showed us all your bias here. So maybe you'd like to set that bias aside from writing off half the people in the world. And let's talk about what you really need and go look for those people. They're out there. There's plenty of them out there. It's a matter of, you know, being more intentional about it. That's that's beautifully well put. In in you know, slightly switching gears here, you've also spoken quite a bit about leadership styles and especially collaborative leadership. What exactly is collaborative leadership and how do you go about doing something like this? Well, I'll tell you a little funny sort of family story. I grew up in a family with three girls, and my father is very old school. He's like 89 now, right? And I jokingly tell my two sisters that our father's idea of collaboration is he tells us what to do. (laughs) And that's not collaboration, obviously, right? So one thing about being collaborative is, you know, acknowledging upfront that you may not know everything and that other people may have something to offer to make the idea better, to, you know, sharpen up the way we talk about it and the way that we, you know, address customers. I mean, there's a a million ways that people can add value. So if you come from it, from the standpoint of recognizing that you don't have all the answers and that you can't individually do everything, it leads you immediately to the path of collaboration, right? How do I find somebody who is really good at that thing that I'm not so good at? How do I find somebody that has that knowledge that, uh, you know, is not my knowledge, right? So that it, it's additive. And then it is about, you know, inviting people to participate. But I think one of the keys to collaboration is, you know, for everybody, when you're collaborating, everybody is somewhat in a vulnerable position. And so you need to create an environment that has some safety to it, right? And what I mean by safety is not, you know, that you're going to be offended or something, but that if you make a mistake, it's not, you're not going to be killed, right? You're not going to be ripped to shreds, right? And that's something for leaders to think carefully about, right? Are we in a situation where our margin of error is extremely small? Well, then you want to make sure you're finding the people that have the most expertise and are the most rock solid in there. That's not a place where you necessarily take somebody who's starting out and throw them in the middle of it, right? So you have to think about how you balance that across the team and how you think about those things. Because Real collaboration does involve vulnerability. And that means there has to be space for people to make mistakes because that's really how you learn. That's how everybody in the group learns, right? And sometimes the mistakes are the things that give you the most insight into what you really need to do. So that's what I would say about collaboration. I'm a big believer in it because I have learned, I guess, somewhat in the hard way, like I don't want to do everything. I can't do everything. And if, you know, the best the organization can do is just the best that I can do, that 
that's probably not going to be good enough. Lovely. I see a lot of this comes down to culture in various ways. And you spoke about a personal story there. And that's kind of true in an organizational sense as well, right? There's like a lot of traditional organizations, which, you know, of course, they want to adapt to the new normal, but they are also in certain ways set in, uh, in, in, their, in their ways of doing things. This is how it's always done. So how would you recommend that these kinds of organizations, you know, create cultures to be more inclusive? Where, or rather, where do you think the main problem comes down to when these kinds of organizations are trying to create an inclusive workforce? It's a really good question. And I don't think that there is one single answer to that question. The thing that I would encourage people who are trying to change culture to think about is, does your organization have a learning mindset or does it have a fixed mindset? And I don't know if, are you familiar with those terms? For the benefit of our listeners, I think it would just be useful if you could uh, unpack those terms as well. Sure. So there's research that has been done around this topic area of fixed mindset versus uh, learning mindset. And a fixed mindset is one that's sort of like, you know, you're smart and you know it or you don't, right? And the uh, learning mindset is sort of, you learn as you go along, you can get smarter about things. So people that have a fixed mindset, things tend to be very cut and dry. They're less open to change because they're fixed in a particular position. The learning mindset is incredibly valuable, I think, to every organization because things change in the world all the time. And so if you're going to embrace that change, having a learning mindset will really help you to figure out how are things changing and how do we fit into that change and how do we maybe take advantage of that change. So, you know, you've seen around the pandemic, you know, different people who have dove into things and figured out how to change things up and do things different to keep their business going or expand their business or find different ways of serving their customers. Those are really inherently sort of learning mindset oriented things, right? And that's where you're open to, we'll run an experiment and see what the results of that is. And that'll be more data that helps us understand the situation or the environment that we're in. So that's a learning mindset. I think for organizations, if you have a learning mindset, then you can look at the issues around collaboration and diversity as opportunities because they are opportunities, right? So that's what I would say. There's a great expression associated with the research that was done on learning mindset because it was done in schools originally. And part of their program was that they didn't give children failing grades. They would give them a grade of not yet if they didn't pass. And if you think about it, that framing in and of itself changes everything, right? It isn't that you failed, you just didn't get there yet, right? So you can go back and work hard at it and you can get there. And I think that's a great way of thinking about it. You don't just give up. That, yeah, that, 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 that kind of makes perfect sense. But how do you, like, there's, there's this harder question of, all right, so I'm an organization, I'm stuck in my fixed mindset, but I want to transition into a learning mindset, right? And is that is that even possible? Or where do you start as an organization? 
I don't know. It's pretty hard. Uh-huh. Yeah, I would imagine it's pretty hard. Yeah. So you've also a lot of lot of stuff that you've you've been able to do. You've been able to drive it through creating a community, creating that ecosystem. And while it's that that that's something that comes rather naturally to you, it's you know it's it's really hard. Like most organizations and individuals struggle to be able to build and scale and listen to their communities. So what goes into creating that kind of a community around your your product or your organization? You know, community usually has to be around something if you think about it, right? Around an issue, around a place, around an activity, you know, it usually has some glue to it, right? It could be a sports community where people all play a particular sport and, you know, know a lot about it. The community that we have is obviously built up around the idea of more women getting involved in product stuff. And so everyone is coming to the table with that as the sort of glue, right, of the reason that we're there. So communities are always around something. And yeah, I mean, that's what I would say is they're really they're really around something. And so you need to think about what that thing is. And is it transient or is it something that has some longevity to it, I guess? Brilliant, brilliant, uh, Elizabeth. And that brings us almost to the close of our session today. But I have three questions, actually just one question. If there was one advice that you would offer for each of these three people, right? One, an aspiring woman leader just starting her career. Two, a talent manager at a Fortune 100. And three, a CEO at a startup. So let's start, let's go uh, one by one. First, one advice that you would give for an aspiring woman leader just starting her career? Uh, My advice would be, be brave. Reach further than you think you can and ask for what you want. Brilliant. A talent manager at a Fortune 100. I would say challenge yourself to think very broadly about the people that you're bringing into the organization and bringing in a variety of perspectives and approaches to things. Don't always go look in the same place. And third, the CEO of a startup. I would say in that case, you are building culture from the ground up. And it's really hard when you're starting a company to, you have so many things competing for your interest and for your time. But if you don't attend to building the right kind of culture from the start, it will happen and be out of control before you can do anything about it. So I would say be very intentional about that because it will make a huge difference for your company down the road. So, you know, thinking about, do I really need a learning mindset here? And how do I make sure that I have the right voices and a variety of voices in the room? I think if you do those things up front, you will benefit greatly. But if you don't pay attention to culture, it will drive you and it will drive you crazy. So, yeah. That was that was amazing, uh, Elizabeth. That brings us to the close of our, um, our session. But that was amazing. Uh, so much insights about, you know, of course, we started with uh, women in tech and women in product, but broader into culture, into, into the thought process that every growing organization should have. I think that was that was an amazing session. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been great talking to you.